Um, Habakkuk begins in the first verse saying the oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. That is a pretty um, concise introduction to this uh, prophet and it leaves us with quite a few question marks. We don't know for sure when Habakkuk wrote this or when he saw this vision. Um, clearly it was at a time when Judah was wicked and when God was working to raise up the Babylonians to come against uh, Judah. The, the majority of sources that I've read suggest the time period of Jehoiakim. I think there might be a better case you could make for the time period of Manasseh. I'm, the re, one of the reasons I would say that is this. It's not a big deal to me. But when uh, God will tell Habakkuk that he's raising up the Chaldeans to punish Judah, he seems to expect um, Habakkuk to be very surprised by that. Well, three or four years in Jehoiakim, into Jehoiakim's reign, the Babylonians have already come in and taken some of the Israelites into captivity. So for me, it might make more sense if we backed it up to what was also a horrible period, where you can definitely see Habakkuk crying out, why in the world are you letting these terrible things go on in Judah? And when it might be a little bit more of a surprise that God was raising up the Chaldeans, since during Habakkuk's reign, Assyria was still dominant power. I certainly won't be dogmatic about that. Uh, you can, you know, analyze that how you want to. The fact is, the book itself just doesn't tell us when it was written. Uh, so obviously that information is not considered to be essential to us. Um, but it is at a time, at least when Judah is very wicked. Now, what, what else does this introduction not tell you that you perhaps would have expected? Besides the date. Where he was from. You see that a lot of times. We don't know where he was from. What else do you often see in the prophets that Habakkuk doesn't tell you? Who his father was. You don't have anything about his lineage mentioned. You really just have his name. We don't even know for sure what the name means. It may be uh, uh, some garden plant. But we're not sure. So there's nothing really we can do much even with the name. Sometimes the names were symbolic. Or, or they had some kind of significance that was picked up out of the book. But that's not true here with Habakkuk. Basically, Habakkuk appears as a voice of God and nothing more. He is heard because he has seen the vision that God has given him to deliver. And that's it. There's nothing about Habakkuk himself that we know about to impress us and to make us listen to him. But all we really need to know is that this is God's message. That this is the oracle from God that Habakkuk saw. This is uh, one of only three prophetic books that tells us in the introduction that the writer is a prophet. Anybody know the other two? Haggai and Zechariah. There's a big deal about that, but that's uh, a piece of trivia at least. So, that's our introduction. Habakkuk sees this, and we're going to be a part of this conversation, really, as we begin between Habakkuk and the Lord. Do you have any comments or questions by way of introduction here? How do you say Habakkuk in Portuguese? Habakkuk. <laughs> like that? that was my, that's my favorite uh, 
Portuguese name of a uh, book. How about <laughs> They would probably think that Habakkuk sounds funny. I don't know. I've tried it out, so. Any other, uh, you know, deep and scholarly questions here? Do they normally say the oracle that the prophet saw instead of like heard? I think maybe. I don't know. That's a good question. I'm not sure the answer to that, uh, Ryan. Um, in Isaiah 13.1, the oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, uh, that's the only passage that came to my mind. Uh, so, I don't know. Yes? Um, I might be way off, but I, in Humanities, they were talking about this oracle of ancient Rome, I think, or Greece, I don't remember which one. Are they talking about a person? No, I don't think so here, but that they did use in ancient the ancient world an oracle-like as a person that you could go to to find out something about the future. Here the word oracle means, I don't think it means something like a judgment message from God. Yeah, good question. Say. Nahum warned the oracle against Nineveh in the book of the vision of Nahum. Okay. So you have the same, I mean, every time I think, I think it mentions the word Saul Maybe so. I didn't really have thought about it much. Uh, Jeremiah 23 also uses a lot the idea of the oracle in those last few verses, but I don't remember if he uses the C idea. So. Other comments or questions? Alright, let's uh, see how this uh, book begins. Um, and not in a way that really any other prophetic book begins, I don't think. So would somebody read 2 to 4? Oh Lord, how long shall I cry? And you will not hear. Even cry out to you, violence. And you will not save. Why do you show me iniquity and cause me to see trouble? For plundering and violence are before me. There is strife and contention arises. Therefore the law is powerless and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore perverse judgment proceeds. Now, you would typically expect the prophet to begin with God. With the message from God. Or some action of God. Or a call of God. But Habakkuk doesn't start there. What we have in these first, uh, in verses 2 to 4, is what? Blank. Yeah, Habakkuk's complaint. Habakkuk is talking to God and um, really questioning God. So that's, this makes Habakkuk quite a different style of book. You know, we start with Habakkuk really not being too happy with the Lord. What basically is he asking the Lord? How long is this going to go on? Yes. Now, is it, uh, can you think of some other books that feature the how long question? Psalms. The Psalms, there's a lot of how long in the Psalms. Where else? Revelation. Revelation? Well, that was a chorus, and that wasn't what I was thinking of. So. Can you do that again? Nope. Job. Jeremiah. And uh, it's, it's impressive to me that God allows himself to be questioned like that. Uh, that God sees fit to record for us in the Bible. You know, men of his, righteous men, who, who, who ask God how long it is okay for us to talk to God 
even with <coughs> frustrations over his operation of, of the universe. Now, in verse 2, what is he, what, what, what's the how long question about? What is it that he's upset about? Yes, he sees a lot of violence. It's not so much just persecution of him, I don't think, but he sees a lot of, of violence. But what is it that bugs him about it? Sees it as unanswered prayer. Absolutely. How long will I call for help and you will not hear? His frustration is that God doesn't seem to be listening to his praying and doesn't seem to be doing anything about it. Have you ever felt that way? Yeah. yeah. Have you ever prayed, maybe over and over again about something, and it seems like God's just not doing anything about it? It's like, what does it make you feel like when you pray frequently about something and nothing changes? Doesn't it make you feel like God's not listening? That he's not hearing me or he doesn't care? Or it seems like he's sort of indifferent? You know, that that it doesn't really matter to him? It's hard for him to understand God's silence and why he's allowing this situation to continue since he's been crying out to him. He says, I cry out to you violence, yet you do not say. Now, I think violence kind of just sums up what Habakkuk is seeing. You know, he looks around him at the nation of Judah, at his people, and he sees violence, injustice, oppression, things like that, that aren't right. You know, how should a servant of God feel when he sees violence? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> we do not, um, you know, want that. That bothers us. You know, Habakkuk's the righteous man. And so seeing these kinds of injustices is, is very difficult for him. What if Habakkuk was, you know, unethical, unscrupulous, unjust? The violence probably wouldn't have even bothered him. Do you know people whose injustices in the world don't seem to matter to them? They, uh, you know, perpetrate a few of their own. You know, it's partially because Habakkuk's a righteous man and he cares about God and his standards that this hurts him. I think that's the the way it is for us, too. If you're really worldly-minded, there are probably a lot of things that don't bother you. But as you become more spiritually-minded... They start hurting you worse. Isn't that true? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I don't know. You all come from different backgrounds, but but uh, what if you were a person, say, that was a very dishonest person, that lied a lot? It probably wouldn't make much difference to you when you heard people lying. You know, that's kind of normal for you. But when you really come to the Lord and you become very honest. And then you hear somebody tell a lie. It's not right. It bothers you. So that's where Habakkuk is at. And uh, he's really upset about this. Comments and questions on verse 2. In 3 and 4, it's not so much God not answering his prayer, what bothers him in 3 and 4. Is it, is it what God is allowing him to see and what he's allowing him to go through? Yes. You know, verse 2 is, I, I, I pray to you and you're not answering this. Verse 3 and 4, 
look at the situation and you're not doing anything about it. Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Look at how bad it is. And it's bad. Do you see that in 3 and 4? Destruction, violence, strife, contention. Nobody follows the law. Nobody's just. The wicked surround the righteousness. The righteous, uh, you know, it's just... It's just totally corrupt and wicked and wrong. You ever feel that way? You ever feel that way about the, the, the United States? You ever feel like there's a whole lot of wrong stuff that just continues to prevail? How, how do you feel about that? Does that bother you? You ever seen that in church? Where you feel like there's just a lot of, of wrong attitudes and wrong behavior and nothing ever happens about it. How would that make you feel? You know, those things hurt a person who served the Lord. Again, if Habakkuk was a really wicked, ornery guy, I doubt he'd have minded that. You know, he'd have probably joined right in the middle of it. You know, some of these kinds of questions only come to the person who's striving for righteousness. And so because Habakkuk's a righteous man, seeing these things really bothers him. And he doesn't understand why it doesn't seem to bother God. Why is God just allowing this to continue and he doesn't deal with it? It's like, it's not just, in Habakkuk's day, a question of crime. Now, you know, what if you have a really good government? Can people still break the law? Yeah. Would you blame the government necessarily because somebody broke the law? I don't think so. I think you can see, you know, what if you have a good, strong church? Good leadership. Could a Christian still do something really bad? Yeah. And you wouldn't necessarily blame the group for that. But here, as often happens, it seems like it's the whole system that's perverted. You know, this is not just, there's some criminals, some outlaws. Here, justice comes out perverted. Here, the law is ignored. Justice is never upheld. It's that the whole system, even of government, is against righteousness and truth. That's what really is bothering Habakkuk. Comments and questions about it. Wonder what you'd say if you were God and you got this question. I don't know. What can you imagine saying back to this if you were God? You want <laughs> Yeah, that's too easy. Carissa. That would be a good answer. Yes. What about? Hey, I'm God. Don't don't ask me any questions. I'll do what I want to. Thank you very much. I think that's probably the way I think I'd answer if I were God. <laughs> that's not the way God answers this. Um, God you know, uh, is more responsive to the cry of his prophet than I might have thought I would have been if I were God. So let's look at God's answer. This is still, this is not exactly what you'd expect uh, in several respects. So see if you can understand what he's saying. 5 through 11. 
Look among the nations, observe, be astonished, wonder, because I am doing something in your days. You do not believe, you were told. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that fierce and impetuous people, who march throughout the earth, to seize dwelling places which are not theirs. They are dreaded and feared. Their justice and authority originate with themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards and keener than wolves in the evening. Their horsemen come galloping. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swooping down to devour. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces move forward. They collect captives like sand. They mock at kings and rulers and are laughing and are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress and heap up a rubble to capture it. Then they will sweep through like the wind and pass on. But they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. Okay. So God tells Habakkuk, look among the nations and observe and be surprised because I am doing something in your days you would not believe if you were told. So God says it may not look like it, but I'm doing something. You ever been along the uh, highway and you see the sign, men working? This is God working. You know, he is working when Habakkuk didn't know it and didn't realize it. You ever think that might be true? When you pray, say, and you feel like, well, God's not doing anything. Well, how do you know what God is doing? You know, pretty much we're limited to just seeing the surface. But you really don't know what God may be doing beneath the surface that may totally change things. You know, I don't know how good an illustration this is, but uh, the whole time I was growing up, and as a young adult, this is way before you guys is done, but most of you, <laughs> but the whole time I was growing up and a young adult, um, the Eastern European countries were communist countries under Russian domination, and basically it was almost impossible to even try to preach the gospel in those places. They, do you, does anybody know, the, does any, do any of you young people know what they called kind of the, the thing that kept people out of Eastern Europe? What do they call it, Mindy? The Iron Curtain. The Iron Curtain. You ever heard of that? When I was a kid, you talked about the Iron Curtain all the time. It meant that Russia had kept anybody out, and they wouldn't let anybody get out either. At the Iron Curtain. And I don't know how many brethren may have been praying about that. I know there were brethren that really cared about taking the gospel to those places where you couldn't take it. And I even heard about... Uh, a brother that had gone to Poland during that time and managed to smuggle a Bible in that a church cut up in pieces and they'd give a piece of it to each of the members to take home that week to study and then they'd come back together on Sunday and trade their pieces. They only had one Bible. Um, you know, and then it was like amazing if you lived back then you know, the Iron Curtain just fell just like that. In, in just a very short time, you didn't hardly see it coming. And suddenly these nations started becoming independent from Russia and started opening their doors. And what I, when I was growing up, I never thought that would happen. I never dreamed that would happen. It's like, this is forever. And it just 
Ooh, it collapsed. And now, brethren, go into Eastern European countries, even into Russia. You know, there's a lot of brethren that have been in Russia and taught the gospel. And uh, my brother-in-law lived in Hungary for a while and things like that. Now, that, what I'm saying is, is it possible that when brethren were praying about that in the 60s and the 70s and the early and mid-80s, and it looked like nothing was happening, is it possible that God was already pulling all kinds of strings and doing things that suddenly something happened? But when things happen suddenly, sometimes it's not nearly so sudden if you only knew what God had been doing. So it could be that God's answering our prayers. We don't see it yet. I think that's what he's saying, saying to Habakkuk here. Well, I am working. So far, you've not seen it. You will. I'm, I, I'm, but I'm, I'm acting. But, he says, you're not going to believe this. And God drops a bombshell on him. <laughs> you know, because what does God say he's doing? And the Chaldeans mean who? Babylonians. Basically use those interchangeably. Um, the Chaldeans is more of an ethnic term. Babylon is what they call the country. Kind of like, what do, what do we call ourselves? Americans. But what's the country? The United States. You know, so there are Chaldeans, Babylonians. He said, that's what I'm doing. I'm raising up the Chaldeans to conquer Judah. Now, what's such a surprise about that? Not you, it was bad. <laughs> exactly. Oh, get a load of what the Babylonians are like. Probably Habakkuk already knew something about them, but God spells it out. In verse 6, what are they like? Fierce. Fierce and impetuous and greedy for land. Yeah. Whose land? Anybody's. Not theirs. <laughs> now, he's been complaining about destruction and violence and injustice in Judah. So God raises up the Chaldeans that just gobble up land that doesn't belong to them and that are fierce and feared what about in seven? What does he say about them? They're dreaded. They're dreaded. Why? They're just as an authority originated with themselves. Which means what? Just justice is whatever they want to happen. Exactly. <laughs> they basically do whatever they want to, and they say it's right. They don't follow anybody else's rules or laws. They're autonomous, they're independent, they're self-sufficient. You know, if they say it's right, it's right. That's the way they look at it. What, what, what do you see in that? What, what would you call that attitude? Arrogant. Prideful. Yes, very much so. And certainly not submissive to God. You know, these are not people who are just. These are not people who honor God. They almost make themselves their own God. You know, if, if, if they say that whatever they want, that's justice, then they're basically deifying themselves. That, that's the kind of people these were. Now, how could God use a nation... <laughs> 
that totally ignore him and do whatever they please and say it's right. Do you see that as being sort of a problem? You know where Habakkuk's going. <laughs> Next. Look at some more things about them. What animals does he compare them to? Leopards. Their horses are swifter than leopards. Now, what do you what do you think of? What qualities are outstanding in a leopard? Yes, swift, sudden, you know, very uh, agile, you know, large cat. Um, <laughs> so they're sudden, they're swift. What other what other uh, animal? Wolves. Wolves. What do you think of when you think of wolves? Murderous. Ravenous. Isn't that the word for a wolf? I think they made the word ravenous just for wolves. Ravenous means what? Very hungry. Very hungry, exactly. And what about an evening wolf? Yeah. You ever go all day without eating? Are there teenage boys in here who ever go all day without eating? You become ravenous. You demolish any food that's in the house. Demolish. Yeah, is that true? Yeah. So here are wolves in the evening. This is what the Babylonians are like. Their horsemen come galloping from afar. What other animal does he compare them to? An eagle. Now, what do you see in an eagle? Large talons. Large talons? Somebody else said something I didn't hear. Courage. It's a hunter. Prideful. Prideful. You kind of go wherever it wants. It's fast and mobile. Yeah. All that stuff. What's an eagle do? Apparently eagles have really good vision. They see their prey and swoop down and get it. Predatory bird. It's very fast, very able to spy things out. That's what the Babylonians are like. Look at verse 9. All of them come for violence. Their horde of faces moves forward. It's kind of like they're relentless. They just keep coming. They keep coming. They keep coming. You can't stop them. They collect captives like sand. Now, that's a really interesting expression, and I'm not positive what that means. There's probably an easier explanation than a couple that are more intriguing. What would you uh, What would you think? Collect captives like sand means what? Captives are as many as sand. Okay, as many captives as there is sand. That's probably the easiest explanation. Scoop it up just as easily. That's a possibility that they can get they get captives just like you know you grab some sand on the beach you know it's no resistance that's another good explanation Chris you pick up a handful of sand each and every grain of sand I mean, that's a lot it's exactly right and what about this possibility too maybe they don't feel any more sympathy for their prisoners than you might feel for a pile of sand. You know, that, that would be another way of looking at that. I think the best explanation may still be, you know, they get as many captives as there are sand on the seashore. But all of those may be possibilities. You know, they mock at kings. Rulers are a laughing matter to them. They laugh at every fortress. 
You know, it's like every king and country is just a pawn on Babylon's chessboard that they move about at will. They will sweep through like the wind and pass on, but they will be held guilty. They whose strength is their God. They deify their own power. That's what God's doing. Habakkuk's been crying out. God's already raising up the Babylonians. Comments and questions? Uh, it's interesting to see that these, these analogies, starting in verse 8, you know, these are all, in verse 8, animals that are independent, self-sufficient animals. You, know, you can't restrain a leopard's speed. You can't restrain a wolf's hunger. Uh, verse, verse 9, uh, talking about the sand, to me it kind of there's the comparison right before that where the, their hordes advance like a desert wind. That's an analogy that we don't we don't appreciate as much as they would have in this context. You know, a, a sudden sandstorm, you can't do anything to stop that. And, and I think the sand, I, I don't know that it's as that Habakkuk's here comparing uh, prisoners to sand, but rather the, the Babylonians to sand. That when a sudden sandstorm comes on, it's like a like a sudden snowstorm does, and you can get snowed in, banked in by snow. Here, the same thing is true for a sudden sandstorm. It, it can rise up a dune and make you a prisoner of that sand. Uh, and, I love it. And I, I guess you know it's, it fits in with the context of these these analogies here and saying. No one, no one, at least in any context, is going to restrain the Babylonians. You certainly see that idea in this. Who stopped Babylon? You know, we, we, God's raising up this, this powerful nation that will absolutely do whatever it wants to, and nobody's going to contest it. You know, like you were saying about the sand. When we lived in California, we went through a really bad sandstorm once. Like, no matter what we did, we couldn't keep it from coming under the windows and under the doors. Well, so, you, like you said, there's no stopping them. Yeah. But that, you definitely get that idea in this passage. You can't stop. So that's, that's an interesting analogy. I hadn't thought about that. Other comments? John? So God is describing this people in terms as if it were already that way, yet it's not yet? I think he's describing the nature and character of them. He's raising up a people like this, but they haven't invaded Judah yet. But they're going to. They are going to be the executors of justice against Judah. They're going to wipe them out. But So I think it's, it's kind of the nature that they have. You think they're already displaying this in other parts of the world? Maybe, or God already sees them like this. This is the kind of people he sees them to be. I don't know how much of that historically may depend on the timing of the book. How much historically they showed that, but that's the what God sees in them. Yeah, right. Mm-hmm. So I don't know a lot of Old Testament. Who's this thing? I don't know. Like, I don't know a lot about this thing. Well, we were discussing back and forth whether or not it's saying they pick up captives like you pick up sand, yeah. or whether it's calling the Babylonians a sandstorm. Ah, uh, okay. Okay, I'm just, yeah. okay. Chris. So, is God raising the Babylonians as like punishment? Yeah, He's raising the Babylonians up to answer Habakkuk's prayer. 
Habakkuk's been saying how long before you do something about all this terrible violence and injustice in Judah. God says, oh, I'm doing something already. I'm, I'm, I'm raising up the Babylonians, and they're going to do something about Judah's violence and injustice. But isn't that just going to bring more? Yes! You should be Habakkuk. <laughs> That's exactly what Habakkuk's going to say. And I think that is what you would think about this, really. You know, it sounds great until you stop and think, wait a minute. You know, if we're really upset about Judah being so unjust and violent, uh, is this helping the problem or hurting it? And that's exactly where, uh, where Habakkuk's going to go. You know, he's going to say, uh, yeah, but how can you do that? Yes? So if this is just to fix Judah, then why do there actually be the casualties of war to show back? We'll see. Yeah. Yeah. You're, we're kind of anticipating where he's going. We'll see how all this plays out. That's what you've got in Habakkuk. You've got more of an interchange. You've got Habakkuk and God going back and forth, and God's letting Habakkuk reason with him, and God's kind of leading Habakkuk a step at a time. And for a while, it only make, makes bad matters worse. Jacob? Um, I think that you should be also looking at this as the Babylonians are so vile that they just, you know, you just step on sand, you don't think anything about it. Okay. They're saying, they just want to Okay. There's lots of ways to look at the sand, isn't there, Chris? Well, you know, God could communicate with prophets directly. You know, there was, I don't know exactly how that was, but you see it pretty often in the prophets, where God would actually have conversations with Sometimes it was visions, sometimes it was through actually angels or appearances of people. In this case, I really don't know. Okay. No problem, Deborah. <laughs> I do that every time. Thank you. Um, in verse 11, he seems to already be answering what will happen to the Babylonians. <laughs> yes. Let's see. Yes, I think they will be held guilty. Yes. God is going to hold them guilty, but he doesn't extend on that yet. But that will be something that we'll need later on. Bob. Uh, we've been studying uh, Old Testament prophets. And, uh, I can't remember where this is at, but the statement uh, lingers in my mind where uh, God made a statement about Babylon and even perhaps Assyria. I know Babylon that their their wretchedness and their desire to destroy was already in their hearts. God used it. He didn't turn a, a nation that was righteous into a tool against. He just what he did is he withheld his hand from those he used to protect, and he let them have their way. Now there might have been other interactions with with Babylon. He sent them at the time when he wanted them to go, but their hearts were wicked towards Judah always, and they wanted to take them out. Yes, I agree with that. I think that's exactly right. Um, God has a sort of a genius about him, where he's able to actually use wicked people and their wicked deeds his purposes. That's kind of an odd thing to think about. That God would actually be able to use a wicked person doing some wicked thing that actually 
that wicked action fits into God's purpose and what he's trying to accomplish. But that does happen pretty often. Can you think of some examples of God doing that? Judas. Judas. Now, did God make Judas be greedy? No. But he used Judas's greediness to actually sort of start the ball in motion to provide the sacrifice that atoned for the world's sins. That ended up being quite a contributing factor to God's purpose. Matt? People in Philippians that were preaching the gospel of selfishness seek. They're spreading the gospel for their own reasons. Excellent. Philippians chapter 1, that's exactly right. Did God give them the selfish jealousy and all that? No, but God used it. Chris? Well, you know, when we ask the question, what would God do if something hadn't happened, obviously we don't have a way of knowing that directly. Uh, but God is never dependent on wicked people. He could obviously do his will best if everybody cooperated with his purpose. And uh, we know that God knows the future. And so God knew what Judas was going to do. Uh, but, but certainly, God's got plenty of instruments and plenty of ways of getting his will done. And if everybody obeyed him, you would assume it would even be easier. Good question. Logan. In the uh, first line of verse 11, it says, and they will sleep through like the wind and pass on. Is that referring to how the Babylonians take people like the mountain move on, or is it referring to the next two lines talking about them being held guilty about they'll only be there for a time and then they'll... I took it the first way. They just kind of, they're kind of like this windstorm that just sweeps through and right on into the next country and the next one, which was exactly the way Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon was. Man, I mean, they were just like, you know, dominoes falling before him. You know, it was ridiculous. And in a short time, Babylon just rose, you know, into power and conquered the world quickly. Kind of the way that's happened historically a few times. You know, is that every once in a while you get a, a conquering nation, and before you know it, they came out of nowhere to beat them all. That's the way I took it. Any other questions or comments through verse 11? Good, good question. Discussion. Clay. I just had a, a thought. Going back to uh, God using wicked people and their wicked deeds for his righteous purpose. Um, Paul makes that argument in Romans 3 when uh, he's talking to both the Jews and the Gentiles. And 3 5 it says, But if our unrighteousness commends the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unrighteous who takes vengeance? You know, if, if someone can say, Well, because I'm sinning, that gives, you know, that makes it possible for God to give more grace and salvation, you know, then God's unjust in condemning me. You know, it's just it's circular kind of thinking, but you, know, you just kind of see that same argument made there, although it's slightly different. Yeah, you might think about this. This is my analogy in all of this. If that problem's ever bothered you, maybe this analogy will help. This is strictly mine. But, you know, what if you took a woman who was like weaving a pattern? You know, maybe some kind of a quilt or something, a pretty design. 
And if you're doing that, then you've got to have different colored threads at different points. I don't understand anything about weaving, but you know, I assume you've got to do that somehow. Now, they don't just dye it after it's done. You know, you've got the different colored threads. Now, what if everybody feeds this woman the right colored thread at the right moment? Well, then it's, it's easy. That's no trick at all. She just weaves it just right, and it comes out to be a beautiful design. What if you got some malicious rascal that's trying to mess up the design, and so feeds her some off-colored threads, some wrong-colored threads at the wrong time? What would you think about a woman who was so wise, and maybe even had some poor vision, that actually could use those wrong colored threads and make them come out to a wonderful design by her wisdom and ingenuity. That would seem to take a whole lot more skill and be a whole lot more impressive. That's the way I see God. I see God as not only the God that if everybody does everything exactly right, he can get his will to be done. He's so intelligent and has so much poor vision that he's able to use even off-colored threads that people, you know, feed him and still come out for his purpose to be fulfilled. That's what I see in that. The God is amazing. Not that, well, you know, isn't God lucky that those wicked people did wicked things. But, you know, isn't God amazing that he can take the wicked things people do and his will is still done. That, that's the amazing thing to me. Philip? Does he even show the greatest extent when he uses the devil himself with Jesus and to where the devil thinks he's cornered Jesus right to where he wants him and then God ends up using, using, using it for, for our salvation? There's not much question about who's smarter, God or Satan, is there? <laughs> you know, because Satan entered Judas's heart if Satan had only realized what was about to happen, he would have never shot himself in the heart. You know, he didn't just shoot himself in the foot. You know, and it's just amazing. Maybe he shot himself in the head. I don't know. But uh, yeah, I mean, God is—you know—he's he outsmarts Satan over and over again. I can just imagine Satan being a fuming, you know, monster that just got beat again, and he's furious. You know, in Revelation 12, where you see Satan being defeated over and over again, I don't think we should have this emotion, but if we don't remember how evil he is, it almost makes you feel sorry for him. You know, he gets outsmarted and outmaneuvered and, you know, all that. And you're thinking, you know, poor guy, except you realize, no, he's not. He's terrible. Why <laughs> well, let's look at this next section, because this is Habakkuk responding back to God in very much the same way Carissa would have, and probably all of us. One twelve to one. Are you not everlasting, O Lord, my God, my hopeful one? We will not die. You, O Lord, have appointed them to judge, and you, O Rock, have established them to correct. Your eyes are too pure to approve evil, and you cannot look on wickedness with favor. Why do you look with favor on those who deal treacherously? Why are you silent when the wicked swallow the more righteous those more righteous than they? Why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like peeping things without a ruler over them? The Chaldeans bring all of them up with a hook, drag them away with their nets. 
and gathered them together in their fishing net. Therefore they rejoiced and were glad. Therefore they offer a sacrifice to their, their net and burn incense to their fishing net, because through these things their catch is large, and their food is plentiful. Will they therefore empty their net and continually slay nations without sparing? I will stand on my guard post and station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me and how I may reply when I'm through. Well, this is an interesting response on Habakkuk's part in a lot of senses. Look at verse 12. What does he say about God? What does he start by saying about God? He's everlasting. He's everlasting and he's holy. Now, I think that's an important place to begin. Habakkuk is bewildered and rather, I don't know, chagrined by what God's doing, but he begins by restating his belief and his understanding of the steadfastness and holiness of God. We cannot lose sight of that. We don't always understand what God's doing. And the Lord is merciful enough to let us question him sometimes, but we must do it with a basic respect for who God is. I don't care whether you understand what God's doing or not. He is from everlasting, and he is a holy God, and we must not forget that. We must not allow these uh, you know, anomalies and frustrating things that happen to just overthrow our faith. You know, we know some things about God, even if not everything seems to line up with that. So I like Habakkuk beginning there. There's a debate about the third line of verse 12, we will not die. That's probably, correctly, you will not die. Talking about God will continue on. There's a whole long story behind that. But, um, but you know, here's the problem. God is setting up the Babylonians to judge and correct. What's the problem with that? Yeah. Why would he be doing this with the Babylonians? I mean, when you think about the purity and holiness of God, does it seem to compromise that to raise up a wicked, evil nation? In fact, how does Habakkuk compare... Judah and Babylon. They're better than that. You know, Habakkuk was really upset about the injustice and oppression in Judah, but he said, well, Judah's even more righteous than the Babylonians, so to raise up the Babylonians to punish Judah really makes the problem worse. That's God even being willing to bless a nation that's even more unrighteous. So he first complained that God wasn't doing anything. Now he complains about what God is doing. You know, it's like it was better when he thought God wasn't doing anything. Do we want God to do something about the evil in the world? Yes. But we don't always like the way he goes about doing it. You know, that's what he, he wanted God to follow his agenda. Uh, not God's agenda, and uh, the cure was sort of worse than the disease. So he says, look at these guys. Look at how the Chaldeans are. Verse 14, why have you made men like the fish of the sea, like creeping things without a ruler over them? You know, he sees the men like fish, you know, out in the ocean, and what does he see the Babylonians as doing? 
Yeah. <laughs> now, what is that? Why did he use that analogy? What does that show you? Absolutely. What is a fish against, you know, a big net or a hook or whatever? And it also shows you, I think, a little bit about the cruelty of the Babylonians. You know, they're just, they view the fish as just easy prey. How many of you have fished? Yes. How many of you have caught something? How many of you have kept the fish you've caught? Some of them. Okay, that's a pretty good number. How many of you have really felt sorry for the poor little fish that you caught and killed? Yeah. There's a few people like that, but not very many. You know, you don't usually feel that way. You catch the fish, and you're thinking, I think this will be tasty. <laughs> That's what the Babylonians thought. They caught these fish and thought, oh, these are great morsels. That's the cruelty of the Babylonian war machine. And look at verse uh, 16. This is amazing. What were they doing in verse 16? Yes! They are worshipping their own power and their own military success. They were happy that they destroyed these other nations. People today are prone to worship anything that makes them rich and successful. <coughs> no matter how unjust. You know, people pay homage to their business and their, uh, you know, education and whatever they think it is that has made them successful. And so, and, and look at what they do in verse 17. They empty their net so they can keep catching more nations. So they just are constantly hurrying to collect more victims. That's the Babylonians as a back sees them. How in the world could God use a nation like that to punish his people? Comments and questions. I might be wrong, but I, I I see that Judah sort of is the worst nation just because they knew God and they still went off and committed sin. That's an interesting approach. Is there some validity to that? Yeah. The Bible does say to whom God gives much, he requires much. So there is one sense in which you would have a greater expectation of Judah. They'd have more reason to know God. I think you're right about that. Habakkuk's not looking at it that way. He's just looking at it from the standpoint that the Babylonians are more violent and more unjust, objectively speaking, than Judah. But in one sense, Judah is more inexcusable. Good point. Yes? No, I mean, I don't know all that much about the other nations that were around at the time, but... It seems like Babylon might have been, at that time period, the only one arrogant enough for God to actually be able to use. Because all the other nations would have known that God was behind Judah and kind of respected that by that point. Yes. At least to a certain extent. Maybe so. I mean, God uses the instruments that he sees are adequate to his purposes, (laughs) even if they've got a bad attitude toward it. So I think there may be some truth to that. Babylon certainly had the uh, the word we use, I forget what it is, but kind of like the uh, 
the arrogance and the audacity. Oh yeah, kind of like audacity. That's a good word, you know, for that. Yeah, good point. Larry. Just, just a question, Gary. Um, I know some things that I might say, but if, if you were talking to someone who was maybe an atheist or an agnostic and, and uh, somewhat hardened, claiming that one of the reasons why they didn't believe in God was because this world is so cruel, and they went back to World War II and said, now here's a man like Hitler, and he's, he murders millions of Jews, all these, you know, um, and and we can look at that and almost make a parallel with Habakkuk, at least in the sense of here is a wicked person that's that's conquering nation after nation. How can God allow this and, and such atrocities? Um, again, what what would you say to somebody like that? Well, I think probably what God will answer is one of the better things that can be said. You know, what did God do to Hitler? You know, I mean, God does bring down the wicked. Now, we kind of want him to bring down the wicked before the wicked have any chance of doing the damage. That's not the way he chooses to do it. But do you think Hitler got by with it? You know, by no means. God does bring justice to pass. It could be that God used Hitler to punish some people he wanted to punish. That's possible. Certainly God does do things like that. And he could use a Hitler. He used that. Sometimes it's hard without a prophet being there to know all the answers to that. Uh, but definitely God does bring justice to pass. And nobody ever really gets by with it. Wicked. John. Many times in that process, the innocent suffer. There are innocent who suffer too. That is true. You know, one thing, there's a lot of things you can say about all that, but one thing to say about that, what would you say about God maybe allowing an innocent child to suffer? Well, I think about things that he said, like about Jeroboam's child in 1 Kings 14. He saw some good in him, therefore he took his life. <laughs> so he didn't have to experience all these terrible things. I mean, a truly innocent person is killed, is blessed. So, you know, a lot depends on our understanding the overall purposes of God and our having faith in a judgment day and eternity and all that. And it really changes you how you look at those things. You know, we want God to make everything right right now. Maybe Matthew 13. You know, the parable of the tares where God allows the tares and the wheat to grow up together until the time of the harvest because he doesn't want in the process of uprooting the tares to take out some of the wheat. You know, what would you would you prefer that God immediately destroyed everybody who does wrong? We probably wouldn't be here this morning. You know, I mean, it's so easy for us, in one sense, to criticize how God operates the universe. Well, God should do it this way. He shouldn't do that. But what if it was us? Just what would you want God to do? Well, I wanted to punish everybody but me. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, well, well, he ought not to allow a wicked person to get by with it. I look in the mirror. You know, thank God he hasn't chosen to eliminate all wicked people the moment they sin. But if he doesn't choose to do that, then that means wicked people continue on for a while doing bad things. 
So I, I think it's easier to criticize than it is to come up with a positive recommendation. And ultimately, we trust God. Uh, but those are good questions. Somebody else may have better answers than I do. Logan. This is kind of an odd question. But um, why is it that uh, God had Nebuchadnezzar uh, take over Judah and Sennacherib, but Syria was trying to take them over fairly recently? Is there any particular reason God chose that one instead? I bet there was. <laughs> I don't know what it was. <laughs> he usually has his reasons, but I have no idea what that was. <laughs> um, going back to what he said about not taking out people. But we want him to take out the bad people right away. But if he did that, we wouldn't learn our lesson. Even if we had no part in it, we wouldn't we we learn our lessons when something bad like that happens. When something like Hitler happens. And then we can go through life and be a better person and learn from that mistake. Definitely. And there's a lot of good things God brings out of bad things. We see that all the time. You know, one one answer to your question, Logan, and, and you know, one thing you could say is in Isaiah 10, God used Assyria in the same way to punish the northern kingdom of Israel, and then he turned around and punished Assyria. And that's exactly what he says in Isaiah 10. Who did he punish Assyria with? The Babylonians. So, you know, God will often use a wicked instrument and then turn around and punish that instrument. That's pretty common for God to do. Other comments or questions uh, on some of these ideas? Shane. When we mentioned it last night in God's devotion, but I think what, what that question, the question of, well, what about innocent children dying, like, this hard time going through life, we were being just. It all comes down to one thing, and that's trusting the Lord. If we trust the Lord, that He will, He's doing what He knows is best, and we trust that He has our best interest at heart, then this is not a problem. It is our lack of trust that is the problem. There is no question anyone here out of hope, no one's mind, that God is God and is King and knows what's best. There's, I don't think there's any question. It's whether we want to trust Him or not. That's the question. And several of the points we're making, kind of interesting, they fit right with what's coming next. To some extent, that's exactly what God will say. You know, it's a matter of trust and faith in me. Philip? I just think we got to make sure we remember when we're dealing with each other that we remember that point that we all fall short. We all have our issues. I mean, sometimes we're just so quick to point the finger at something that we see and, and not even try to appropriately deal with that person who's having a hard time with something um, which is something in common I see that. But your sins are worse than mine. <laughs> <laughs> Other comments? Thank you. Chapter 2 verse 1 um, he's talking about how he's going to wait and see what God replies but why is he saying all this when he knows God's going to refer them? Well, that's an interesting question. That is what he says here in chapter 2, verse 1. You know, I'll, I'm just going to stand on the guard, my guard post. I'm going to station myself on the rampart. I'm going to watch and see what he's going to say to me. You know, so he's saying, I'll wait for the Lord's answer. And then he says, and how I may reply when I'm reproved. He is assuming God won't like his questions and that God will yell at him. And so he's going to wait for God to do that. Got to take his medicine. And, 
you appreciate the fact that he's going to wait for an answer. I appreciate the fact that he went to God with the questions. I think that's a good thing. If you got the questions, you're better off to talk to him about it. Now, why did he ask those even though he thought he'd get reproved? Well, which would be better? Not ask God and just be resentful or ask him and allow him to reprove us if he thinks we should be reproved. I think that honesty to God and transparency before God is, a, is, is the right thing. Even if I think God's not going to like it, I'd be better off being open and honest with him. So I think Habakkuk's a good pattern in this. And the truth is, God doesn't exactly reprove him like Habakkuk thought he would. God has often been more patient with men turning to him and questioning him than we would think he would be. If I were God, you know, and I had all power, and some puny earthling wanted to question me, you know, I just nuke him. But that's not the way God feels. You know, God is very patient, and he appreciates the honesty and the fact that people do turn to him. So I think we learn that, that God will allow us to, to ask more questions and he doesn't he's not as defensive as we would be. God knows he's doing what's right. He is not threatened by us coming to him and saying, I don't understand. But you're more glad you're not gone. That is a very good thing to say. Um, I think a lot of times this is something we really struggle with in our prayer uh, is being open. Uh, I think a lot of times when we have our model prayer, um, using words we never use in a normal language. Here's what I can bring over this prayer and say, here's what, I, here's, what I, here's what I'm thinking, here's what I'm feeling. You know, correct me if I need to be corrected. And I've been doing that to add to this one. That's what I really struggle with. Um, in my mind, you know, I think, I look at it this way, but I can't tell God that. But why can't I talk about that? It's not like He doesn't already know. You know, it's like, what are we going to do? Hide it from and, and I guess I look at this and think, it's not the problem that I'm saying it, the problem is that I'm thinking it. If there's a problem with what I'm doing, it's not that I have to say it to him, that's the struggle or the problem. It's the problem is that I have to think this and it's a part of who I am. Well, think about this too. Why is all this a problem for a back? Because he's going to go with him? More fundamentally. What if a back didn't believe God existed? Would this be a problem for him? Well, there'd be no contradiction of the righteousness, holiness of God. What, what if he thought Habakkuk, or what if, what if Habakkuk thought that God was just a wicked, unjust sort of a God? Would that be a problem for it? No. He would understand that. The problem is created because he does believe in a just, righteous God. So I think that's a helpful thing. Think about it. Most of you aren't parents, but you can think about when you are going to become a parent. When your kids start growing up, what would you prefer? Would you like to implement a system in your home where your children say, yes, sir, no, sir, whatever you say, sir, to your face, behind your back, they hate you, they resent you, they talk bad about you, but every time they're in your presence, they say, yes, sir. 
Or would you rather have a relationship with your kids where when they really are upset about something, they come to you and talk to you? Even if it's, you know, a little more, they're a little more upset. Well, I want my kids to talk to me. I would rather they come to me and talk to me than just be inwardly seething and outwardly they say the right things. I think that's the way God is too. He would much prefer our talking to him directly about the things that bother us. He can handle it. You know, I, I think it's a really good model. You know, again I would say, why does God let books like Habakkuk stay in the Bible? Or Psalms like 44 and 88? And uh, things like that. Well, because God's people sometimes come to him with questions like this, and we may do that too. Now, we have to be respectful to listen for the answer. I really do like chapter 2 and verse 1. Habakkuk doesn't just say, well, I'm just done with God then. Not at all. He says, I'm going to wait and listen for God's answer, and when he rebukes me, I'll take it. Even though that's not what God chooses to do exactly. Other comments or questions? better to complain to God than God. Exactly. And that's the way I feel as a parent as well. I'd much rather my children come to me and tell me when they're unhappy with something I've done than go and tell everybody else about it. Anything else through 2-1? Well, I would somebody read 2-5. to five. 